0: Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. Now, Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to this episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Joining me on the phone from the alarm, it is Mike Peters. He's got a new album. Well, in fact, it's a mega project called Stream Hurricane of Change. And of course, you should check that out. But before we get to that, let us say hello to the one and only Alan Niven. Bonjour monsieur Alain. How are you? Bonjour monsieur, ça va. Yes, yes, yes. Are you a Et vous? Yo, yes. Je je suis uh, bien. Yes, I, I am fantastic. But are you a fan of the alarm does the the manager of Guns and Roses even realize who the heck the alarm is?
1: Uh the man, the former temporary manager of Guns and Roses um who sometimes is prone to saying I was there during the productive years. Um, Yes, of course I knew who the alarm were. And in point of fact, I kind of liked them for the fact that they were really trying hard to say something worthwhile, Um, that they had uh, a slightly political bent, which I appreciated. And, uh, you know, you know me, I like people to express their sense of society and politics through their music, that I'm a lover of Lennon, that I'm a lover of Bob Marley. And uh, I noticed that by uh, tweet, even Axl Rose is slowly getting to the point of uh, expressing his political opinion, which is something I'm very happy to see. Um, although well well are you really
0: are you really wait wait
1: wait! let me say he's 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 he's, he's 30 years late to the party um but you know when you do express your politics there are going to be some people who are going to have contrary opinion uh did you have something you wish to mention
0: well two things actually first of all uh, i'm going to have to start introducing you as the guy who didn't Manage Bon Jovi. That's going to be the new intro. But second of all, (laughs) speaking of former band members that are tweeting. So Axel tweeted out a whole bunch of stuff. Rolling Stone, Spin Magazine, and a whole bunch of others made a big, big, big issue out of it. But another guy that used to be under your purview, Mark Kendall, guitarist Mark Kendall of Great White, who his talent is uh, abounds. We cannot uh, say that. But uh, he tweeted the following earlier this week, and it says... Uh he by the way is not looking for a, a hurricane of change I guess. He he tweeted out China spread the disease, Democrats spread the lies, media spread the panic, they crashed the economy all to destroy our president remember in November. Um I was uh that, that was that was one heck of a tweet I got to say. Any any thoughts about your former uh guitarist? Well, how many words did he have there? Well, he didn't actually use words. He 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 Count took a Well, oh. well he, he took a picture and he posted the picture. So, let's see. Count the words. one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty-one, twenty-two, twenty-three, twenty-four. 10 11 12 13 14 15 16 17 18 19 20 21 22 23 24. In 24 words, he he, po- he posted that thing. Now, luckily
1: I'm Canadian right, well, so that I, I stand. that. That'll tell you one thing immediately. If it if there are 24 words there, then we know that it took uh, it took him 24 weeks to formulate that, given the speed and alacrity of his intelligence. Um, yeah, I pause for a moment because uh, um, as, as, there are there are a couple of things in there. Yes, the virus did come from China. Yes, I have my suspicions of w- whether a protein or a biological entity actually comes from um nature or is by design and yes i'm not sure if we're just talking politics when we're looking at mr trump because i take exception that my creativity which mr kendall still utilizes to pay his rent with um associates the band name with a person who i think is absolutely despicable and this is not politics this is this is assessing a person on their actual merit in trump we 're talking about a thief we 're talking about a liar we 're talking about a person who has known knowingly stiffed countless people who are involved in projects with him in Atlantic City. There is plenty of evidence to suggest that he has been washing Russian money through his condos that he sells in the Trump Tower since 1982. There was a person who had an office in the Trump Tower just down the corridor from Trump who was a known associate of the Russian mafia. We're dealing with a liar and a crook. And lying and crookery are two things I do not want associated with my creativity. It (laughs) was... I could go one more step, but so maybe stop me or let me go the one more step. But as you can tell, well, perhaps I'm upset about it. We call it verklempt. I, yeah, I, you know, if Mark wants to express his personal opinion, go ahead and do it. You know, your judgment has always been brilliant. Let's talk about you know the guy Stefan Williams he brought into the band, whose only reason for being there was because he made you look like Johnny Depp. Uh, you bring a French guy in with a French accent and a French vibrato to sing songs that were absolutely handmade for an absolute all-American great singer, Jack Russell. And then you replace him with somebody who's got all the personality of a Las Vegas tribute band. Brilliant, Mark, as ever.
0: Well, um, I don't mean to, uh, to, to deviate, but by speaking of great singers with Jack Russell, did, did you see his Toto Hold the Line cover? And I don't try to, I'm i not trying to deviate too much, but that was brilliant. That was a brilliant, brilliant cover that, that Jack did. Um, it, he
1: sang it with Robin Macaulay. And um, what I really liked about it was the way their voices worked together. And I thought their vibe was really fun together and really cool. Um, and they should do a couple more things, Robin and Jack. Yeah, they really do. That digresses. Do. It, it's that a big digression. Digresses, that digresses entirely, and obviously that's your hope and intent. Is
0: no, digress. no. In fact, what, what I want to ask, though, is, you know, back in the 60s, being political and, and writing about what happened in Ohio and Vietnam War, and it was very much, uh, I guess, needed societally, for society in, in a sense to sort of say, hey, what's going on here? Uh, but at this point, should artists like Mark and stuff just uh, you'd stick away, stay away? I mean, I, I know we're going to say First Amendment. Okay, forget that. Forget rights. Just in terms of marketing and branding, don't you want to bring as many people under the tent as possible? Shouldn't sometimes you just say nothing? I mean, is is that wrong to say? Uh, I, I think know.
1: part. I think. I think one of the, one of the things that distinguishes an entertainer from an artist as an entertainer, will be apolitical and appeal to everybody and, and be at pains to appeal, to appeal to everybody, whereas an artist has a point of view and they stand by it. And that is an, an intrinsic and essential element to being an artist, is having a disposition and standing by it. And I respect that more, and it goes back to me to, to the sense of, What a troubadour was all about and the legacy of the troubadour and the tradition of the troubadour. And before we had transistor radios and we had any form of radio or television or computers, we had musicians who went from hamlet to city to village to town, who sang the songs that society recognized within itself, that had a point of view and a social point of view, and they were a social glue and a unifying force in their own right and that aspect of the troubadour and the artist i think is valuable and essential and the center of gravity of it all yes um i always wanted axel to have a point of view because i thought he was a a big enough performer that he could actually use his performance as a basis of expressing a point of view and I had a fundamental faith that the, any point of view that he'd express would basically be a blue collar point of view because rock and roll is the voice of the working man. It's the voice of the disenfranchised. So yeah, I was hoping that Axel would take that mantle on. Um, you know, they take it on in tweets these days instead of songs, but you know, with Mr. Candler, I got to say, I'm sorry, dude, this is not about policy. This is about ethics and character. And if you stand up there and endorse a person who is so obviously deficient in ethics and character, then I'm going to ask, what is this? Birds of a feather that we just not only have fake news, but we have fake presidents and we have fake guitar players. And that's my point. And you can tell I'm a little bit pissed about this.
0: You're a little, uh, little worked off, uh, which is which is yeah. great, by the way, that we have Mike Peters on because you definitely sounded the alarm today. See? Look at that. It all ties Look in magically. That. It all ties in magically. Should, should we get no, over...
1: No, it ties in with your very deft expertise at your very good craft. Let's get over to the alarm. I've sounded it.
0: Yes, you have. Let's get over to Mike Peters talking about Stream Hurricane of Change. Here is the one, the only mike peters we are speaking with the alarms mike peters uh mike a great great pleasure to talk to you again how how are you
2: i'm great mitch thank you good to be back on the show um yeah we've survived the lockdown here in wales and we're still under some of the impositions but uh, it's easing off now and the sun is shining and we can see the light at the end of the tunnel
0: yeah, hopefully. Hopefully we'll get to the end of the tunnel. But uh, let us talk about this new exciting album that you've put out, Stream Hurricane of Change. I've I've had a chance to listen to it, and I find the concept not only refreshing, but just brilliant in terms of what you've done. So there, there's spoken word where you sort of talk about stuff and talk about the songs, and, and you've got this stream of consciousness going on, and then you're, you're, there's new music, there's some of the classic songs are redone, reimagined. Talk to me about this concept and, and working with this trilogy of albums that you did. Yeah,
2: it, was, it, it, it fell into place really because it was a 30th anniversary period and a time to look back at those songs. And I had done that with our previous original first two albums with Declaration and Strength. And they they thrown up some interesting angles. And, and my, my approach is really to say, well, what would happen if we'd wrote those songs today? or recorded them today, what would they sound like? The original 80s recordings are always going to exist. They're a time stamp of that period in our lives. But the songs move on with you through life, and they change in the eyes of the fans and the hearts of the fans when they come to be part of their lives, when they are going through certain situations like getting married or having children or losing parents or, or going through life and making drastic changes, having to survive. The songs take on a new life and, and they do for me as a writer. So I went back to the original sequence of either the Hurricane and Change because they were both really wrapped up in a similar time frame towards the late 1980s. And, and when I looked at them, it, it straight away, the thing that leapt out to me, which I didn't realize at the time, was the first song created was the last song to be released on the Change album. It was the last song on the album and New South Wales. And I realised that was the first song we, we debuted as The Alarm in 1986 on the, the pathway to a new album which became Either Hurricane. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting. I read the lyrics and I thought, well, there's a story here that, I, that I'm reading. It's, it's, this isn't necessarily me. It's a character. And um, he's walking home alone past the church full of morning souls. He's obviously at the end of an era. And I thought, where's he going? Where is this person travelling to? And and I looked through the list of songs from the two albums, and there was a new town Jericho. That was a destination. A song on Iron Hurricane, and and so I read those lyrics straight. I thought they they carry on. The story continues. And and I, at the time, I had some songs that were from that period which we never recorded. I never even presented to the band, and they were in the lyric book that I was looking back on. And thought, oh, that that flows from here and all of a sudden a really autobiographical story presented it to myself but it's a story of the alarm as well it's about leaving a small town at the end of an era it's it's about finding the coast to strike out and realize your ambition wherever that may take you and wherever that destiny may lie and and it's only through going through those experiences that you can really understand who you truly are when we left wales as the alarm in the 80s it it was a form of escapism and and um, when we got to America and people asked us what's Wales like and we started describing it and relating it to the radio DJs and the journalists presenters like yourself we thought actually hey, Wales sounds amazing when you put it in these terms and you talk to these people and so through that journey of discovery we, we actually found ourselves coming back to Wales and falling in love with the place where we'd left and it's a whole Life cycle that r- really brings you back to the beginning, and uh, and that's where you find out who you really are. And so that's really where the story and the idea of, of it was born in that that transition of of songs from looking at them as 1980 songs and instead looking at them as songs for today.
0: Let me uh, let me pick up on two things there. When you look back on these, and you and you see that there's a continuity and that there's a story, almost like like reading a book. Was that sort of a serendipitous kind of discovery where you went, wow, look at that, this, this this, tells a story? Or have you always approached songwriting in, I need to tell a tale? You know, because there's a lot of bands that just go, hey, girls, girls, blah, 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 shake your money maker. And there's not a lot of substance. Yeah. Were, you, were you always concerned about substance and telling a story and saying something with your songs and not just, hey, let's rock and roll all night and party every day?
2: Yeah, I, I think I've always tried to have some permanence in, into the the message or the communication that's coming out in the songs. I've uh, always tried to take it seriously. You know, coming from the background, I did of seeing punk rock happen, which was all about a message and empowering people to become themselves. That that was the DNA the alarm was was built upon. And so it's always been in the music. But with, with Eye of the Hurricane as the as the beginning of this cycle of music that we're talking about I I found that a difficult record to to make it was it was right in the the second part of the, the 80s the dynamic in the band had changed and so instead of following my lead like we'd always let's go to London guys let's make a single let's try and get a manager let's go on you know let's get on the road all of a sudden when everyone wanted to say, "Well, no, let's stop here. I, I want to take control of this part of where we're going, and I want us to do this, and we don't want to do any more of your songs." Like we just want to write group compositions. All all, all those forces came into play, and it, it became a very tenuous time. And I thought I was writing under a cloud. I was a lot of my energy was going to try and keep the band together, keep everybody happy, um, and and so I was felt very distracted in the making of either Hurricane and and yeah i thought some of it i thought yeah this is this is disconnected from from what went on with the strength album and the declaration album but it's still valid but I, I it feels like it it's their music or someone else's music at the time and and i thought well this is just how we we're evolving and we we're changing we've got to get used to it and we'll discover the meaning of it all when we get it out on the road and and we and we and we, and we start to live in it inside that music and uh, And so it was only by looking back on it, by chance, really, in the 30th anniversary that I found a way into the music that had been hidden from me at the time or or had been blurred. And and I feel more comfortable with these songs than I ever did before. I I now know why I wrote Rain in the Summertime, why the lyrics were there, because they were part of a a story that I couldn't actually see at the time. And When I sing it in stream, when it comes in that part of the story after the, the at a time when the character in the in the tale actually finds real love for the first time in his life and think it it is like when the rain and after an intense period of heat of running so fast to get away from all the things that are harmful in your life and then you meet that person and the light goes on you think the rain comes out you wash away all that tension and and that it, it's really enabled that song to, i can't wait to go and sing it again in the future with that knowledge rather than just it being a part of the song cycle, because when I came to sing rain in the summertime in the very first instance, it was, it was the last song contributed towards the album. We were working with John Porter, the producer who'd recorded how soon is now with the Smiths. And he'd asked me when, when, when we played him all the demos, have you got anything else you haven't played me that might be interested? I said, look, there's one little jam session of this half a song that, that we, we, put together in in the rehearsal room and it, i played him the cassette and he goes, that's really interesting leave it with me mike and he went and created a whole arrangement in his producer suite using a drum machine and all this and then and he copied what we had on this cassette and and when he played that thought that's amazing and and the scat lyrics that well, i was singing in this jam session i love to feel the rain in the summertime that was my subconscious who drove those He didn't write them down they just came out and I thought, I c I can't sing that. That's not the alarm, you know. And I tried everything to change the lyrics on the microphone. And every time I tried, no, I wanna feel faith, you know, anything. John put it, not as good as rain in the summertime, right? That's your your first instinct took you there and that is killer. Um, um, and I gave his, Yeah, okay. And but so to me it just felt like that was a, a pop song that we'd written as the alarm. And it was only by going back to it thirty years later that I realised it was part of something my Subconscious was trying to tell me something that my subconscious it felt wounded at that time. You know, when when all your band members turn around to say, "Right, Mike, we don't want to record any more of your songs that have driven the last two albums. We want to stand in a room and create something out of nothing." You, you feel a bit. It's like, "Whoa, okay." You feel hurt, and so I didn't realize how much I would I pushed down and suppressed in myself at that time in the history of the band. And I just got on with a job and always kept this try, OK, great. Let's try it. Let's work it out. Let's see it's all going to happen somehow. And in the end, we went back to all the songs I had in my bag anyway. And, and we, we had recorded all the Mike Peter songs and off we went. But it was still, the damage was done. And, and, and so part of me felt suppressed during that writing. So to go back to it and actually realise I was firing on all cylinders on that record. I was contributing to the depth and the integrity of the band. It's all there. I was just, there was too many politics and too many ramifications going on for me to be the true artist I know I was capable of in, the, in that record. Because I was, like you say, trying to deal with the politics of keeping a band together at the same time as being a creative musician. So I have discovered a lot through going into the stream and seeing where it was going to take me. And it's take me to places I am really surprised by the outcomes.
0: Well, it almost sounds like you're getting closure on what was going on in the 80s. But I want to take you up on on two things. Uh, You mentioned coming from Wales to to the United States and and doing a lot of radio and a lot of press and a lot of touring. And as a kid back then, I got to see, of course, uh, the the strength videos and the declaration videos on uh, Much Music in Canada and, of course, MTV when I would go down to the States. How important was the U.S. market, because you look at some bands, uh, whether it's Thunder, whether it's Status Quo, whether it's so, they never really seem to get it together in the states, and they never really seem to have made a push to get accepted in the states. But you came over and you did you did these tours. And these, how important was the U.S. market for the Alarm?
2: it was it. Was huge. It was a dream come true. We, I mean, we we got lucky. You know, we we came to America before we made anything of a name for ourselves in the UK. We had There was no hype when we had no one waiting at the airport when we got off the plane in Los Angeles for that first day. We were an unknown band and as unknown as you could be. And we got there because we would played a couple of gigs with U2. We'd become friends with them. They'd take us back to the hotel. Uh, we'd done a lot of dates with them on the war tour in the UK. And then when they went to America and the, that album took off, and they, they were invited to extend their American tour and do a second run and do the Red Rocks gig and go and play their first arena shows in America. They said to Paul McGinnis, their manager, we'll do all that, but we are tired. But it would really help us if we had some friends and a, an opening band that we knew and we liked. So that was the alarm. So we got the call out of the blue to go to America and it, and it was incredible. We were great mates with you 2 know, They took us on the tour bus with them. We played soccer with them. We we talked about music, books, films, everything. It was like two gangs of friends out on the road together, having a brilliant time. And we did have a brilliant time. It was amazing. And um, and because I think we when we our first gig was in San Francisco, and we just walked out on stage, nobody knew who we were. And by the time I said, "Look, this is our first ever gig in America," and and by the time we finished, we had the whole place on its feet, and they everyone. There was no journalist there with some preconception from the NME or Sounds or Melody Maker that this is the greatest British band that that's ever been since the Who. We had none of that hype. We would everyone took us on face value. In fact, when we we got accepted onto American Bandstand during that first touring period, and we made our first TV appearance with um, the Cutting Edge on MTV, and 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 when we were. In America, we actually got asked to go on Top of the Pops in Britain. And we, came, we flew home, recorded a Top of the Pops show for the BBC and flew straight back to carry on touring in the United States. And the, the, in, the, the presenter in Britain said, they, this band were on tour in America two days ago. They've, they've flown here. And now here's their new single. It's called 68 Guns. And when we came back a couple of weeks later after the broadcast, everyone thought we were an American band and nobody knew we were from real North Wales. So we snuck up on, on a lot of people, and a lot of it is down to that lucky break of we got through U2. And, you know, Whereas I've seen it so many times since with Oasis or Simple Minds or all these bands that come over with a huge um, press junket that says they're the greatest thing, they're going to storm America, and everyone goes to America and well, come on then, prove it. We just didn't have to overcome that kind of war. So we got lucky in, in a way. And and we obviously, we, we loved America. We loved meeting American people. Some of my best friends I met from coming to America and Canada. And we've been very lucky to have been gifted this opportunity to travel so much and meet so many great people. And and again, I think there's there's sort of a skepticism in Britain as well about certainly British musicians that they, they feel like, oh, when they go to the USA and North America, they, they have to, oh, what, we have to be nice to the DJ or shake his hand or something or her hand. And, and it's like, well, that's just being pleasant human beings, courteous. Surely you, can, you don't have to be the rock star, that it, it, it gets paraded in front of a, a sceptical NME or British music journalist DJ who's trying to unravel your cool. Uh, that's not how it works, so... We just got lucky. We, lo- we loved America from the moment we got off the plane and um, loved the opportunity to go back there every year. In 1987, we, we, you know, we put the miles in as well. That was one of the great things when we did that first tour with U2. It wasn't just LA, New York, Boston. It took us into the Bible Belt. We were playing Oklahoma and, and, and all these kind of places that people don't normally go to. And uh, so we, we we saw a lot of a lot of great places in in the USA, um, and we were always about getting to the people when we came, and we had the opportunity. We, we did a lot of dates in in Canada, and on the either Hurricane tour, we came up and played in Calgary and places like that. And and that's always stood stood us in good stead with those audience members. You know, we've at some point in the history of the band, we've made that effort to get out to those places where people actually really live.
0: And not that easy. Yeah. Well. So let me ask you this then. You you have this tour with you too. You're all like you said. You're all over the place. You're gifted. This tour, first album does great. Second album does great. It's all again like I said. It's all over MTV and much music. By the time you get to Eye of the Hurricane, why then do the other band members say, "Hey, this is broke. We need to fix it." It sounded to me like it was actually working pretty good. So so why was there this? this inner turmoil of, hey, we need to not do Mike Peters songs. We need to be more. Why didn't they just say, man, this is great. We played stadiums all summer. Let's keep going. I know. Yeah. I, Shame I on them. I can understand it myself. <laughs> I, I can remember ke-
2: coming into rehearsals two weeks after we played at Wembley Stadium with Queen and we'd just done UCLA and done that live all across the world. And, and then I got, we got cause Dave Sharp and said, right, Mike, we're not doing any more of your songs and, and it, and, it, and it turned into this whole warfare, and, and, it, and it went into the evening standard. Uh, it ran a piece of Dave Sharp's girlfriend that said "The alarm on the point of breaking up." and they had this big fight over the songs. and, and it, so it, instead of it being something that we could deal with privately, it became public, and in those days, there was no internet, but this story that started in the newspaper in Britain went on every rock syndication you could possibly imagine that the alarm were breaking up, news. It went everywhere. And um, and we 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 ended up having a, a good long period where we tra- we could we tried to work this situation out. And it, it only got resolved in the end by our record label IRS Records and Steve Tannett, or A and R man saying, Well look, why don't you go and do all your songs, Dave? Michael go and do all his Everyone else can chip in with their songs and then I'll choose the best songs for the album. Okay? And so everything looked great, an independent arbitrator of all our songs. And of course we put all our demos in and Steve Tanner at the A and R goes, right, we're doing all of Mike's songs and one of Dave's. And that was that's what it took to resolve the, the situation. So we ended up back at square one having seriously damaged the career outlook of the band. And the timing, if we'd released either Hurricane or an album that we'd made with all the positive energy that we had in going on in 86, in January 87, which was the original plan, we'd, The Alarm would have put an album out, the third album, their big, potentially their biggest album, before In Excess release Kick, before U2 released The Joshua Tree, before Simple Minds did Once Upon Time. We'd have been the leading band of our generation, and, and we'd have been... Building on the momentum we created with all these massive shows we played up to that time, instead, our record came out after the summer. It came out in October. Um, our manager had been fired. The the, uh, the you know the other members of the band didn't want to carry on with our manager, and it was three against one, and they voted him out. And he was very important to us as well. And uh, so we we really and uh, and our record company was IRS Records. We were never on the same record label twice virus IRS used to flit around. We started with A and M, then we went to MCA, then we went ended up at EMI, and oh, oh. so we always had a different team of people around the record every single time. So we never had that continuity. Some of the other bands did, and but it, it, that's created a very interesting background and backstory to what the alarm is, and I think that's partly why we're we able to survive this long because we've got a really colourful story, and and you do. even the. This, anything that's... Yeah, and then anything that's... But all the challenges just made it, made it stronger, ultimately. You know, and it, and we never could chase... We were never a band that wanted to chase fame. We didn't want to be a pop band in that sense. We wanted to have some integrity and, and we were ready to die for our music and wherever that would take us. So, and, and this is where we are. We're still very popular. We get to tour every year. We're like a big family. All the original members still become involved in things. We've all been on our... Big night in lockdown broadcasts. Dave Sharp plays us on the tours when we go out. Eddie comes to the gathering. Nigel plays in San Francisco. Everyone is still linked together and uh, in, a, in a good way, in a positive way that our fans can see and they respect. That and um, we are, like I say, we are a big family and we're about to celebrate our 40th anniversary
0: next year. Yeah, which will be great. But, I, but I'm just having a hard time wrapping my head around it. It's July 12th, 1986. You're opening for Queen at Wembley, and, and Dave and Eddie are going, Yeah, this is not working. We need to write some songs. This is not working. It's like, What are you talking about? It, it, wasn't, it wasn't Eddie. <laughs> it was David and Nigel, really. really oh, really David, and Nigel. Yeah, David and Nigel. Yeah, David and Nigel are looking at each think, other. Yeah. It's not working. It's, you know, sure, it's not. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, honestly, Mitch, I couldn't understand. I couldn't. I thought this would go away in a minute. This is silly, you know. I, I walked into rehearsal with all these songs in my bag, and they were, "I don't hear any of them." We're going to jam. And I said, "Well, that's what you two do. We're not that. We, we you know." And, and for me, I, I'd always been uh, my ambition as a musician was to be a songwriter. That was my thing. You know, I wanted to be one of those guys in brackets after the song title and uh, and that's that was what, what what I wanted, you know, and I didn't want to uh give that up, you know, just to be an anonymous member of the band. I wanted to be considered as a songwriter because I put my life and soul on the line for the songs I've written well
0: all right and I know we're going to run out of time we We have till one o'clock we've got about five more minutes, so I'm gonna ask you this. You have said previously in interviews that uh, the Who's Quadrophenia is your desert island disc if if you know if there was a nuclear assault and there was only one album to survive that's the one you want uh but the stream of a hurricane or sorry stream hurricane and change has also been considered uh somewhat of a your own kind of quadrophenia tell me about the the importance of that album and then having critics say hey you know what your new album sort of reminds me of that it's it's, that's a huge compliment it's a huge compliment yeah and Look, there's some, I think if you connect with
2: these records, and you can see yourself in the storyline, it, it can it can carry it deep into your life. And, and I, certainly, when I got Quadrophenia, I wanted to be a mob straight away, and I wanted to be like Jimmy, the, the, the positive sides of Jimmy, and I wanted to be in a band where people would come and see you and, and, and pin their hopes and their their night on on you and they would be coming to see you thinking I'm going to feel better about myself tomorrow because I'm going to see the band I love and hear the songs that have become a part of my life. And uh, yeah, so I think uh, with, with "Stream Hurricane" the change it. it, It's I I wish we could have made that record like it is now in 1987. If we'd come out of that, maybe it would be um, upheld alongside Quadrophene as a masterpiece. Uh, uh, But it's, it's been such a long time coming, but Again, it's it's got a life of its own. I was being approached to, to stage it at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. I've been approached with other theatrical festivals to stage it. Because in January, we we recreated the whole concert um, at the Gathering. We, we staged the performance of Stream Hurricane the Change with the band. But with all actors on the stage, we have a narrator telling the story um, so I could stay on the stage and be a musician, a singer and interact with the audience without having to be in character, like the storyline demands. And we have the whole audience was immersed in the concert. They were, they got dressed. We asked them to dress in a certain way so they could feel like they were part of the ensemble. We have acting going on in the crowd, on the stage, on screens. It was incredible. And, uh, Oh, luckily, we, we decided to film it at the last minute, not with a million cameras, but I've just managed to take uh, control back of the tapes because, sadly, the guy who came in to film and direct the, the film, and he died about a week later, which was really sad. And it's only just now but it's been, it's a state we've been able to clear up the, the confusion of all these master tapes, and we've been able to get the, the film tapes of this um immersive version of the Stream Hurricane of Change. So hopefully I'll be able to put a film together that can really uh, convey what the depth that's in this project and where it might go in the future when we interact with more theatrical agencies and we see what's there. And if I think this is a record that will be around with Mike be and on for a long time to come. And it won't be at every show we play, but there'll be certain times I'm saying, you know what, we're going to play Stream Hurricane a Change Special night here, or in a theatre here for a week. So there's a lot to it, and and I think that's again, it's taken us into that idiom of Quadrophenia, Tommy, War of the Worlds, those, those kind of concept albums that are out there. And hopefully, it's given a good name to the idea of a concept album because they're usually frowned upon these days. But so uh, it was. Uh, hopefully, it'll um, allow people to go back and listen to Quadrophenia and Tommy and all those other records that I've got some concept around
0: them, and- absolutely. And uh, I know we're out of time, but I'll just say this had it been released in 1988, this probably would be considered a, a masterpiece concept album. And I'll remind the folks uh, Mike and his uh, wife have The Alarm, The Big Night, uh, Big Night Inn, which you can watch on YouTube, and also a record store day, September 26, 2020, Celtic fol- Folklore. Ah, those words are so hard for me to pronounce. Live is coming out. uh, Ten previously unreleased recordings from the uh, tour back in 1988. And on that, as we say in Montreal, Mike, merci. Always, always a pleasure to talk to you.
2: Merci, Mitch. Thank you for having me on the show. Really appreciate it.
0: Anytime. Cheers. Merci. Bye-bye now. Thank you. Bye, Mitch. This has been Rock Talk with Mitch Lafon. For more exclusive content and interviews, subscribe on iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, on YouTube, and many more. Follow Mitch on all the socials, especially Twitter, at Mitch Lafon and on Instagram, at Mitch underscore LaFon. Get your Mitch merch now at loudtracks.com slash Mitch.